week. I mean, every week is going to be an intense week. So let's just start with this week. Uh, the U.S. Comfort arrived docked on Monday, and that's a Navy ship that has a thousand beds. They're not going to use any of those beds for COVID patients. It's going to be a backfill uh, situation where they're taking people who would otherwise have been hospitalized in the hospitals that are now COVID hospitals, and they're transferring them to the ship. A field hospital is popping up in the East Meadow of Central Park, and that's quite a sight. I think that really hit home for a lot of people, tents going up right in the middle of Central Park. The Samaritan's Purse was one of the groups in conjunction with Mount Sinai and the city that kind of put the project together. And I want to say it was Gothamist who reported that um, they have some like anti-gay rhetoric as a Christian organization. So assurances had to be made to the mayor and the mayor's office, and the mayor had to pass that back to the press, that assurances were made that in no way would that affect care, yada, yada. Also, now this is where it gets weird and nerdy and interesting. Andrew Cuomo, the governor, yesterday started talking a lot about unifying not just all the public hospitals, but also the private hospitals. And not just as their own silos, but unifying them together so they could pool and then centrally plan to deploy resources, masks, medical equipment, ventilators, obviously, and volunteer staff that are flying in, paid for staff that's coming in. So that's a really interesting turn. I think Cuomo said something like, it is literally antithetical to the business of healthcare to be doing this. Um, I assume he's had a bunch of closed door meetings with uh, the Greater New York Hospital Association, and one can only assume what goes on in there. But he does have the powers with the executive order where he was granted emergency powers. There's a section in it that says he has the right to issue a directive when a state disaster emergency is declared to allow for appropriate response to such a disaster. So whether he could have or would have made this a directive or whether he's just trying to negotiate with the private hospital association, you know, how that's happening behind closed doors, nobody can really say. But 
he says that it is happening. So what this means is that all the hospitals are working together, upstate and downstate. Patients will be transferred between hospitals, probably not seamlessly. The the Albany Times Union reported with the Albany Medical Center accepting patients from New York, from Jamaica Hospital and Flushing Hospital who were transported there. Right. So we're already seeing that work. And it's just kind of like a huge, huge turn of events. Also, Dr. Mitchell Katz, the president and executive officer of New York City Health and Hospitals, who is my also my like new favorite guy to watch. Um, he's got better eyebrows than uh, Whipple, I think, um, or at least like at least he's like the the <laughs> he's the protege of Whipple eyebrows. Um, he told us today about twenty hotels that are now going to be turned into hospitals. They're not for people on ventilators. He did. He said that they were not going to have ICU beds in these hotels. They were going to make like one room on the floor, a nurse's station. They were for people recovering from or kind of on the upswing of COVID, the COVID virus, and that still needed care or needed to be separated from their families for quarantine. He said that the city was able to expedite all these contracts because the hotel industry is obviously suffering. So I was going to ask, Chrissy here, just while we're talking about Cuomo, and the budget is due at the end of today, Cuomo has taken a lot of pride in on-time budgets. Um, Also due today for a lot of people, you know, Wednesday being the first, uh, was the rent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cuomo has consistently declined to cancel rent, although he has halted evictions for the time being. What do we know just about the state of the budget? Uh, what else is or is not mixed into that, like bail reform? Like, w- What are we looking at at this point? Obviously, we, we may know much more by the time there is or is not a deal at the end of Wednesday. Right. I mean, I think what a lot of people are afraid of is that, you know, as as our legislators are negotiating with the governor, many of them, you know, via Skype and sort of not having the opportunity to have sort of the in-person lobbying that usually goes on with their colleagues and others, I mean, I think some people, especially activists, are really afraid that the governor will, um, even though he's enjoying some great press nationally, will go back to sort of this one-man IDC that many of us feared he would be and and really dig in his heels when it comes to issues like bail reform or, say, marijuana legalization or some of the more progressive ideals that people um, have been trying to push him on uh, since, honestly, 2010. I mean, I think it's really interesting that, you know, uh, his opponent in 2010, one of his many opponents in 2010 when he first ran for governor, was the gentleman who ran on the party that the rent's too damn high. And here we are, a decade later, we have a lot of New York residents who are really worried about the fact that they don't have a job, they don't have any prospects of getting a job, and it's just an indefinite unemployment, and people are trying to reach the number to even apply for unemployment, and that's not even possible. So the unemployment benefit system usually gets something like 50,000 calls a week. One day earlier this week, they got 1.2 million calls. It's been 8 million in a week. This after a record 3.3 million people filed for unemployment benefits nationally last week, and about 5 million or more are anticipated to do so this week. So clearly, things uh, you don't need us to tell you are, are really out of hand, which for a lot of us, I think, goes back to, to the rent. 
I mean, the rent is kind of a huge issue, and where the state is going to decide to bail people out is going to be really important. So they're not canceling rent, but they're canceling evictions. And time and time again, Cuomo is just like, every time a reporter asks him, uh, what about the rent? He just answers, well, I put a moratorium on evictions. So shrug. And tenants obviously want there to be a moratorium on rent. In that instance, there would be a lot of bailouts having to be done for property owners who need to maintain their property over the next two months and maybe themselves are living, you know, rent check to rent check. Um, And that's that's just going to be a problem hands down. There are some projections out there that are saying like 40% of New Yorkers might not pay their rent. But as of now, a lot of people, if they are employed and they can pay their rent, they're being advised to pay their rent. And if they can't pay their rent, presumably there will be some legislation or something in the future where they can apply for some financial relief. So as stressful as the rent situation is, if you have kids, well, you've got to figure out a different place to bring them than the playground because all New York City playgrounds are now closed. Last night, because people weren't adhering to social distancing and the obvious quagmire that can come with just fining people, the mayor decided to announce that they were going to close 10 playgrounds. However, this morning, Andrew Cuomo, the governor, announced that they were going to close all the playgrounds. Corey Johnson had been advocating for a closure to all playgrounds for a while. The open space in parks will still be open, but playgrounds in New York City are now shuttered. You know, Alex, I I know that um, this didn't come up. I don't think it came up in the in the briefing, but I know we've talked a bit about uh, the rise in domestic violence. But um, in closing the playgrounds, did anyone talk about the rise in child abuse during this time period? That's been a huge, huge concern, and a bunch of people are doing pretty good reporting on it. FAQ guest Christina Carrega has written a couple pieces on it. So everybody, including the police commissioner, Dermot Shea, is just worried that these crimes are being underreported. Now, kids aren't going to school, which is usually one of the first observation places where a teacher or something might see, like, signs of abuse. And now... uh, People are being told to shelter inside and in abusive relationships, um, that kind of control. Like this is basically a perfect storm for a rise in domestic violence, sexual assault and child abuse. What we worry about in some types of crimes, particularly domestic violence, is is it occurring and there's a lack of reporting. And that's certainly something that's on our mind to try to combat that. We're reaching out to households where we know. Uh, There has been domestic violence in the past as kind of trying to get ahead of things. But thus far, we have not seen a reported increase in domestic violence. And with all this floating around and the president now talking about how 100,000 to 200,000 dead nationally would be a job well done, there's going to be an awful lot more to keep track of over these next few weeks. We're going to keep reaching out and calling interesting people and those with some perspective or insight into what's happening. And right now, let's go to uh, Ben Smith, formerly of BuzzFeed, now of the uh, New York Times, and a veteran of the New York political reporting scene to get his perspective on how well the city press corps, much thinner than it once was, is doing in covering the news apocalypse we're having now. Ben, thanks for coming on. 
So you've been writing about this. I just wanted to get your view of the state of local news in New York generally and given the coronavirus and the financial hit this has had on outlets. Yeah, I mean, th- th- thanks for having me on. And I think, I think that, you know, the big in the biggest picture, what's what's happening right now is that all of the trends which we've seen play out over the last, you know, really decade or decades in terms of the threats to local coverage of New York City, the diminishing number of journalists, I think you're really just going to see them accelerate. That's heartening. So... I know you uh, you were involved with the uh, with the city before it launched, and I've loved a lot of the work they've done. Um, my two concerns are one that they can be stayed at times, which you know, as you mentioned in your column, is one of the, the dangers with the nonprofit model. And two, that the, they sort of ate a lot of the remaining talent of the tabloids, as those are giant but diminishing. Like, yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess I would I, I, I reject both of those premises. Um, and this, I do think that, like, if you're looking for a bright spot right now, it is uh, one of them is the city, which is this. If people don't follow it, they should do um, new, pretty robust nonprofit newsrooms. And I think the idea that they ate the talent of the tabloids. I mean, the tabloids are cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting, and it's basically good news that somebody's going to come along and hire some reporters. How are the tabloids doing at this point, in your view, as a daily news veteran and just as a reader? Yeah, I'm fairly a veteran. I was there for a year, but I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the post, I think, continues in this funny way to set the agenda for the city through with this kind of punchy, strident, basically conservative voice. And in some ways, it is liberated by not have trying, even I think trying anymore to build a business that makes money. Um, the news at this point, you know, as part of Tribune, which is probably the worst of a bunch of pretty weak newspaper chains. Um, and it's just stretched incredibly thin. I think, they, you know, they do, the thing is, in this particular moment, in this crisis, you have reporters at all these places risking their lives, doing incredible, incredible work, and, and in really, really tough circumstances. I think, you know, the executives there, too, are doing what they can to keep the lights on. But I think the news is just this very difficult situation financially. So... You've got the Post, you've got the city. I guess there's the radio stations, there's New York One. Do we do we have the, the media needed for a moment like this, locally, nationally? Like, is New York media still equipped to keep up with this moment? You know, I think, I mean, I think that we're, we're this, you know, it's both like an unprecedented crisis, but it's also happening in a moment where the media has been totally reshaped. And I think that probably the most powerful piece of local media in New York is Governor Cuomo's briefing, which is coming to you directly over the internet, over radio, over television, is, you know, is media that the government is creating to talk to you. Um, and then it's surrounded by commentary on social media. There's been great, great journalism. I mean, I do think in this moment, the Times, which had really stepped away from New York City, and I think in some ways was cover- it covers it like it's a really interesting foreign country for the rest of America to read about, as well as doing some incredible sort of accountability work has unleashed this massive newsroom that I'm part of on the city. And so suddenly, you know, you have hundreds of New York Times reporters, you know, on a scale that no other city is going to have covering local stories. And that's a big part of it. But um, it's pretty anomalous. And then it's only for the only for this moment. And so but, so I do think broadly, nationally, you know, this is a crisis where social media is playing a really central role, where the social media companies for once are doing a pretty good job 
of deleting misinformation, health misinformation in particular, and steering people to trusted sources, where like the voices of doctors and nurses in particular on the front line. Like I think I'm, I've been consuming as much things written by doctors and nurses on Twitter and on Medium and on Reddit as I have articles, and I've read a lot of both. But I think there's, I mean, I do think that you're seeing the sort of power of these like testimonies on social media of experts on social media. And I think, you know, there are moments when, when we in the uh, professional media could compete with that, but I think there's, you know, a lot of both. I saw with uh, with Trump somebody suggesting on social media, you know, this question of whether the network should be covering these pressers in full, the idea that instead of sending in political reporters, this would be a time to send in medical reporters or experts to ask uh, better and more focused questions there and get some value out of them, uh, which I thought was food for thought. I don't know. I mean, you think you're going to get a lot of value out of a, of a PhD health reporter asking Donald Trump questions about viruses? I mean, it might be an entertaining sport. Uh, you know, I, mean, I think the question of how you deal with a president of the United States who goes around saying ridiculous stuff and picking divisive fights, I think it's something that we like to imagine is under the media's control. And I don't think it really is. Like, what's, what's the best case scenario? Like, he's, he's still president. I got an email from uh, Rudy today, from Common Sense, Rudy Giuliani, talking about all the necessary treatment options, including zinc. I think he possibly he's playing a doctor now. And I've been thinking about Rudy and 9-11 while Cuomo has been getting great praise including in a column from you for, for how he's been handling his press here. And he has, he has been effectively his own press, right? His conferences are, are the center of a lot of people's days. Yeah. Is, is this like Rudy after 9-11? And, and how, how important is just a leadership and messaging sort of as distinct from what you're doing? It, it is a little odd that we're the epicenter of the crisis and, and have all of these cases. And, and, and you know, the governor dealing with that is, is, is being widely praised. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, what, what leadership in a crisis is and what people need. Because I think when you look at Rudy's performance on 9-11, in some sense, there wasn't that much for a mayor to do. Like, the hospitals did not wind up full because so many people died in the attack. And to the extent that there was an aftermath that was about keeping people safe from toxic fumes, you know, he did some things, but I think a lot of people, but he obviously, in my respect, could have done more. But there was a kind of emotional leadership that, people really wanted that he provided. I think it's hard to think about how you value that. Like people obviously value it, but how do you grade that? How do you put your finger on? You know, Cuomo right now is a guy who I think a lot of people who know him, the more you know him, the more there are things about him that drive people really crazy. Like this sort of bullying, aggression, micromanaging, kind of control freak style are all incredibly reassuring in this moment. He is just like absolute control of the situation. That's the sense that he will just run anyone over to get to his objective. They're very, very reassuring. People are looking for a strong leader who is in control of the situation, which for the president has not appeared to be. And so, and I think it's almost a little apart from is he doing a good job on the metrics? Like, if you look around the country and you're looking for an executive who acts really decisively, London Breach shut down San Francisco very, very quickly. I'm not sure if she's doing briefings every day or her leadership style is quite the same. And I think that you know, Cuomo was sort of 
among a number of governors moving pretty decisively, but in retrospect, obviously, late. we were all late. The other governor who comes to mind there is Chris Christie after Sandy, um, who, you know... Yeah, get the, get the hell off the beach. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, pe- people loved him at that moment, and uh, that ship, of course, sailed, but he seemed like... Yeah, the man I, think, the you know, I, think, I think that there is a... Um, there's like an undervalued kind of like essentially hacky political leadership that in normal times, in this kind, in this particular moment, these sort of like, I mean, the people I'm thinking of are all like not particularly attractive middle-aged men who have spent their careers as essentially political hacks, class, I mean, the greasy pole, and there's a lot of disdain for that. And people who really know their way around local government who aren't particularly reformers, people who are sort of masters of the system, not, not people trying to fix the system, really can rise to these occasions. I mean, Mike DeWine, the Republican governor of Ohio, is another example of somebody who I think a lot of people in Ohio would have thought of as this kind of like uninspired political hack. You know, ultimately, these are people who have managed through crises before, who know how to communicate, who know where every single lever of government is and how they work. And in these moments can really rise. Yeah, and I think in a moment when, like, when the superficial politics of social media have really been dominant, it's interesting to see these these kind of hacky political managers, technocrats isn't the right word either, really succeed. And all three guys we mentioned here are former prosecutors as well, uh, for what that's worth. Yeah. And when you're looking at the uh, at the local landscape right now, and, you know, you're, your wife runs Brooklyner, which is terrific and has dropped its paywall now, so that people can see all of their coronavirus coverage. Like, what's your sense of the economic model for that going forward so that we don't end up barren neighborhood by neighborhood? You know, I just think it's really, really tough. I don't think there is a great answer to sort of getting back to the kind of scale of journalism that was being done in this country 20 years ago. Because I think the institutions that are viable right now, you have these huge, quasi-monopolistic, national outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and yeah, but I think that's the way I used to work in that category, that have built businesses on a, on, on a just enormous scale. And then and then are able to sort of reap the rewards of that and reinvest them. In, in the same way in almost every other industry, you have these this sort of tendency towards monopoly. And then you have these small, nimble local outlets like Brooklyn or like Berkeley side in California. There's a number of them around the country that are run by a couple of people that are sort of the grown-up version of local blogs do a, can do a really great job or, you know, are really, like, run by people who really care and, and are trying to make their communities better. Um, and who can, you know, in the best times make a living at it. But these things aren't, you know, they're not, they're not going to scale up to be a Metro Daily with 500 journalists. And then you have uh, profits, which, again, probably won't quite reach that scale. But I think, you know, when you go in a city like New York, a lot of rich people who care a lot about their city. And if you think about journalism, kind of like a public utility, like water or electricity, then one that's really missing. And I think people are increasingly starting to see it that way. It is possible to raise a substantial amount of money to run a pretty decent newsroom. There's also, I think public radio often gets left out of the public radios, but it doesn't, it doesn't all add up to the glory. So Facebook now is investing $100 million to support the news industry. They say $25 million in emergency grant funding for local news and $75 million in additional marketing to uh, move money over to news organizations. You know, given the role Facebook has had in, in drying up the news economy as it once worked, is that, is that a meritorious thing? Is that a fig leaf? Is it both? 
Like, what should people make of it? I think that, you know, I mean, Facebook and Google, you know, and their total dominance of the digital ad market are really the central story in American news, news media. I mean, they're the ones centrally driving newspapers out of business and preventing preventing anything from rising at their scale to replace them. Like, you have a handful of online outlets that have been able to build businesses, but the, ad, but the digital ad business just didn't grow up to replace the print ad business. And the reason why is Facebook and Google. You know, I think they feel in differing ways some responsibility for this. I think within their vast needs, they can find some space to sort of try to repair it and pay for some news. I think they also see that it's in their interest to have trustworthy, reliable news on their platforms and not their people, either their users, either being constantly exposed to garbage or constantly hitting paywalls. And so I think they're trying to figure that out. And this is, you know, I think $100 million is a meaningful amount of money, um, $25 million in grants. But it's not, it's not a business model, right? It's, it's maybe gets you through the crisis to some degree. And I think that they and everybody else who's trying to help news organizations get through the crisis should be realistic about, you know, about who's going to emerge on the other side with the goal not of, not of propping up companies necessarily, but of keeping journalists employed. Ben, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time and running through some of that. Uh, I'll read you in the Times and hopefully see you out in the world sometime soon. Good talk, man. Thank you for Hey, Ben. Thanks. Thanks, Harry. Um, I think your conversation with Ben really illuminates the necessity of all types of media during this crisis. Um, I actually spoke to documentarian and director Akisa Omalepu about the state of the arts in New York City during the coronavirus and how they'll fare once we get on the other side of this virus. Knock on wood. Where are you calling in from, Akisa? Hey, Christy, calling from the Upper West Side. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you. I wanted to talk to you about the state of the arts right now, just because we have so many museums and cultural institutions that are closed for business indefinitely until we get past this surge of the coronavirus. And I want to just ask you some questions um, since you have been so instrumental in the arts in New York City and essentially globally as well. But I'll start with that. What are some of your thoughts on where we are and how can we look to history to help us as a guide? Great. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I really appreciate it. Um, as you said, I'm a documentarian and director, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's been challenging because my work does deal with talking to people face-to-face, getting to understand their story, I can tell you in my sphere and my personal world, it's been deeply impacted. But on a larger New York City scale, I am a native New Yorker, born and raised in Manhattan. It's hard. A lot of my friends were really struggling because institutions are closed. There's emergency funding available for some people, but far and wide, that money is gone and opportunities are gone because we have to quarantine at this moment. And, you know, New York City is a global cultural hub with 8.6 million people and growing. Unfortunately, as that global hub, it's why the novel coronavirus, also the epicenter, New York City is the epicenter of that virus. But I think it's also important as we're all sitting home, watching our various streaming services, we are the beneficiaries of cultural production and cultural output. We're watching movies on Netflix or streaming Spotify, that is, we are benefiting from someone's intellectual and cultural output, and that needs to be acknowledged during this time. From your mundane reality TV show to art to movies, 
art plays a critical role in a reflection of how we see ourselves as a society. And it's no wonder that movies like The Farewell by Lulu Wang or Atlantique by Maddie Diop has gained great attraction because the demographics of New York City and of the world and in the United States shifted so dramatically. And we want to see ourselves reflected. So as this relates to the novel coronavirus, I'm curious to see what happens post-virus. I'm curious to see what happens in terms of our cultural institutions. An institution like the Met, the Met Museum, according to their site, their total revenue last year was over $515 million, Mm. and their total assets are more than $3.7 billion. They're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're going to be just fine. I'm thinking more about an institution like Weeksville Heritage Center. How will they? How will they? That's survive? in Brooklyn, right? I'm thinking about the, exactly the Jazz Museum in Harlem. How will they survive? How will those institutions that are the repository of our cultural life? How will they fare post this novel coronavirus? Now, you mentioned that there's emergency funding. Is that for everyone, or how would how would a small institution even go about applying for that or receiving it? Uh, I, for my various groups, their individual artists can apply. There is one for medical emergencies, but doing them in May. So that's not quite right, <laughs> right. as instant as people think it is. Right. And I know of a, a few smaller um, um, grants that are available, but unfortunately that does not address the real day-to-day needs of artists. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's going to take a Herculean, Rooseveltian-type program like the WPA and or the federal art program to really address this long-term need that will need to take place across the entire United States. As you know, the federal art program or the WPA, WPA funded artists all over all over the United States to paint murals, to create art that was reflective of America at that time. And the art world is going to need something at a federal level to address the serious economic challenges that are facing the artistic community, no matter what your medium is. And I think that's going to be critical to really not only expand, but to ensure that a country like the United States, the, the one of the wealthiest countries in the world, values art. Because that's ultimately what we're saying. Do we value the cultural output of this country? And if we do, we have to finance it. Right. But in the Works Progress Administration, when we, we employed writers and poets and visual artists and sculptors. I mean, do you have faith that this particular administration and this particular party would prioritize that in, in moving I'm going to keep hope alive. Okay. <laughs> but the reality is, I, I would like to think so. I, I don't think that's realistically going to happen. I really, really hope a visionary on some national, on a federal level, really sees the value of of art. Mm-hmm. A- a- again, I go back to the fact we are home watching Netflix and Showtime and Disney Plus. We're watching art. Art is a bomb in troubled times. Mm. And we can't take that for granted. We may not be able to go physically to the Met or physically go to the Guggenheim, but we can watch some limited collections online. We are being soothed and cradled and our souls are being healed through art. Right. And we can't take that lightly. So if we can't necessarily rely on the federal government, we know that many of the state and local governments are going to be stretched to the absolute limit as we Mm -hmm. get on the other side of this this curve. 
Do we look to philanthropists and foundations? Like, how do you think we we get out from under this? Because so many organizations are closed temporarily yeah. slash indefinitely. Indefinitely. But how do we move forward, essentially, if we can't necessarily rely on something like a WPA Part 2? First, I would, I would, I'm going to keep hope alive and say, hopefully someone, unlikely, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone in the federal government says, hey, we also need to be mindful of the long-term ramifications, and we're going to set aside X amount of money for art. I'm just going to throw that in the universe for positive energy. And we know However, that some of that was in the stimulus, but it's not nearly enough. It's not exactly, not nearly enough. Um, yes, we're going to have to lean on the billionaire class to really, you know, put their money where their mouth is and maybe collectively find or, or fund global artistic endeavors, again, no matter the medium in this country, because we need, especially post-corona, I can only imagine the output that's going to happen post-corona as people are home, hopefully being productive and creative, but also processing corona post-corona, what will the output look like? And that output is going to require funding. So going back to your question, it's going to take the billionaire class because unfortunately, I don't think we can fully rely on the federal government to solve this problem. That's a really tragic statement, but it is what it is. Mm -hmm. To really take this to the next level because I I am not an economist, but I think we're going to head not for a recession, but a a, a depression. Mm -hmm. And a depression will last for several years. And we need everybody, but we need the arts, we need the artists, whatever your medium, to really, you know, distill what is happening to America and to the world to make sense of it. It's also going to be a living record when we're dust mm-hmm. of what, what happened during that time. When you look at the murals, and you can still see murals here in New York City, in Harlem Hospital, and other places, you can see, you get a sense, you glean what was happening through the depictions of those murals. So not only is it necessary, but it's also necessary for the footprint, for that, for the imprint rather, of this time in the world. When we're gone, people look back and say, oh, well, that was happening. I have seen blah, blah, blah artists decided to use their medium to depict X, Y, Z. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But we need the arts uh, during this time. Oh, Akisa, thank you so oh, much Christy. for joining us. I know. <laughs> um, I am. I am sort of, buoyed some days by looking at all the art that's being created online with just people using their talent and, you know, just regular people who are home uh, who normally don't, you know, haven't dusted off that instrument or that paint can and have decided to tap into an artistic side of themselves that has, has been dormant. So that at least is somewhat encouraging, but we know that obviously some real structural change is going to need to happen post corona. Absolutely. Well, I hope you're keeping well and isolating and eating good food and taking good care of yourself. Oh, I definitely am. Akisa Omulepu, Emmy-nominated documentarian and director. I appreciate you so much for joining us on FAQ. Thank you for your time. Wow, awesome. Uh, Yeah, I mean, arts funding is definitely something that's on my mind. So... 
I interviewed Alexandra Skaggs earlier this week because I know nothing about economics. And she writes for Barron's. She's a financial journalist, but she's also really kind and patient. And she explained to me how a few progressive economic principles are now making their way into the Federal Reserve as they start to lend more money to cities and states. This is an excerpt of a longer interview I did, which you can find on the FAQ website. Can you just give me a primer on the Federal Reserve and their relationship with corporations as opposed to their relationship with like governments, like municipalities? Yes. So the Federal Federal Reserve um, basically just like manages the money of the country, like how many dollars are out there, um, how much currency is in circulation. And one of the interesting things about the Federal Reserve is that it is actually owned by the banks. Um, the banks are all uh, shareholders, basically, in the Federal Reserve, and it manages um, the sort of economic policy through the banks and through corporations, mostly. And so um, it's a really interesting thing because as the Fed takes a bigger part of this sort of disaster response, um, I think that ends up actually having some political implications that are really interesting um, because they don't really see necessarily municipalities as their thing to manage. The Federal Reserve has been really hesitant traditionally to lend to municipalities or states because they figure Congress can just do that directly, right? Like they they want to make sure that they're sort of in their monetary box. And that's been the story for most of the time that the Fed has been has existed and definitely since 1950 or the 1950s when they when they separated themselves from the treasury um but it's interesting actually uh you know we're talking someday and the story came out in the wall street journal about how the fed might actually introduce a new facility to lend money to municipalities and states and that's very interesting because it shows that the fed is thinking like this is such a severe situation. It's going to be so difficult for people to find financing that we want to step in and help out. What were the arguments before COVID-19 for allowing the Federal Reserve to lend money to municipalities? Okay, so this is actually a really fun, and it might be a little like nerdy. It's a really fun, like nerdy debate. We love Basically, fun and nerdy here. <laughs> <laughs> it's really entertaining. So like there, there are a bunch of uh, progressive economists who I know they're, they're like working with uh, institutions called like the modern money network and basically trying to open up access to money and sort of make money creation, like the kind of money creation the Fed does into more of a public good. And one way to do that and actually get things directly to people is by allowing the Fed to lend to state and local governments. There is a bunch of people that have been calling for the Fed to lend to municipalities. Uh, How long has that been something that people uh, on the progressive side have wanted? I think a few years. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people on involved in progressive economics knew that something like this, you know, whether it was caused by a virus or some other kind of thing that would cause a downturn, 
I think they kind of realized that something was coming like this. And they sort of started coming up with policy ideas. And this is one of them. I think a lot of people thought it was going to be some climate change related thing. Not that pandemics can't be caused by climate change because of like uh, deforestation and all that. But I don't know as if, yeah, I don't know. When I also often fantasized about the dystopia I would one day live in, it was never the pandemic dystopia because that's not as fun to imagine because you can't go outside. F-A-Q. Thank you for joining us for another episode of FAQ NYC. Normally, we record at the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. But this year, we recorded our various interviews in Crown Heights. And my colleague and co-host, Harry Siegel, uh, recorded his in Windsor Terrace. Our executive producer is Alice Brooklyn, and she is in Greenwich Village. And our producer, Adam Kamara, is in Dittmas Park. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay safe. And a quick service announcement for anyone who cares. My Cadillac blew a hose. I don't even know what that means yet, but I'm going to attempt to fix it myself. I'll probably do it on some kind of social media platform. Awesome. Don't tell the war on cars. <laughs> Get Dave Cologne down there with a, with like a camera and a mask staying six feet away from me, tisk tisking me about not having a bicycle.